Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. Some stories are very different, but some stories have similarities, at least in some of the challenges of poverty that the individuals who are writing to us are talking about. It's been interesting to see how they kind of watch the stories of these five young women and what we're doing and feel a connection because of that. And so that's been pretty powerful because that speaks to universal humanism, that we are all sharing certain experiences and we have certain ways of dealing with hardship or challenges that evoke certain emotions. And so that's been very powerful to watch. It's more than a school. I think of it as a community and almost an ecosystem. Um, the youngest child there is four and the oldest graduate is 25. So that's a huge range. And there's a lot of lived experiences and a lot of traditions and culture that comes around through that period of time. You know, some of the best schools I went to actually taught me I should think about myself first and I should be very successful and um, not really worry about anything else besides that, right? And uh, that seems to be at odds with what my parents taught me and what I personally believe in. And I believe in that we are, we are born into a world that we are sharing with uh, our fellow human beings and that hopefully we're going to leave this world better than we entered it and that we should be proactive in our contributions positively to this world. And, and I think that is the ethos of Sean. Um, we we really instill a sense of civic and social responsibility within the kids. Go on and be successful. Go on and uh, make money. Go on and attain your dreams. But make sure that part of your dream is to give back to people in need, to give back to society, to be a positive contributor to this world, uh, to help those in trouble. Hello, it's Fei Wu, your host for the Face World podcast. Today's unsung hero is Ajit George. He is um, the director of operations at Shanti Bhavan's Children's Project. First of all, let me tell you a bit about Shanti Bhavan. They bring children from generational poverty to a life of dignity and achievement. Their students are the first in their families to become authors, computer scientists, engineers, entrepreneurs, teachers, doctors, nurses, and, and more. Their mission is to break the cycle of poverty for India's lowest caste, also known as the untouchables, with a world-class education, enabling them to aspire to careers and professions of their choice. Shanti Bhavan provides 17 years of holistic education from pre-kindergarten all the way through college and into their working careers. This may be the most ambitious and perhaps the most unrealistic project I've ever come across. Adj's father, Dr. Abraham George, is the founder and principal of Shanti Bhavan. He has quite a story, which you will hear some from Ajit himself. Ajit's presence and support for Shanti Bhavan makes the whole story arc even more engaging for me to watch. As he's closer to the student's age, I can see a different 
type of transformation. And he's like a big brother to hundreds of these children at Shanti Bhavan. The level of trust and love is just unforeseen. We talked about ups and downs of the school and how they conquered the most difficult financial crisis and continued to run the school. We also talked about the organic farming at Shanti Bhavan and how the students get to work on the farm and enjoy the delicious food they will consume. This is a true story of love and hope. You might be wondering how I discovered Shanti Bhavan and Adja George. It was actually through a Netflix series called Daughters of Destiny, featuring the story of five young women from Shanti Bhavan. After listening to this episode, I highly encourage you to binge watch this very series. Social service is a big component of Phase World, perhaps one of the most popular category. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to stop by phaseworld.com and check out a few others as well. Without further ado, please welcome Ajit George to the Phase World podcast. First question, you know, it sounds like Netflix did trigger the interest, the impact that I guess you were expecting. Yeah, um, I would say that Netflix has been 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 great for us. Uh, the series has kind of opened up the organization to uh, a new audience uh, and a new demographic, or, or rather, multiple different audiences from across the world. Um, we have an outpouring of people who have written to us from South and Central America. So a lot of people from Brazil or Argentina or Chile um, and from Mexico. Uh, so across across the um, across the continent. And that's been pretty exciting, um, as well as a number of people from Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and of course, through Asia and of course, you know, United States and Canada as well. So I think there are areas and communities that have never heard about the organization or never knew something like Shanti Bhavan existed that ha- were able to see it and connect to their own lives in some fashion. Um, you know, especially people from uh, communities or areas that are dealing with their own poverty uh, have written to us wishing that, you know, there was a Shanti Bhavan where they were, that there was a school like that or an organization like us near them. And so that's been both heartwarming, but also, you know, a bit sad, a little bit challenging to kind of hear their stories and um, the hardships that they face too. Yeah. And so I wonder how did hearing about these people's stories maybe comforted you or kind of shocked you in a way? I mean, it's so easy to compare, but at the same time, difficult. When I started watching the series, I thought about my upbringing, and which was in Beijing, China, but there was um, Project Hope was the name for the longest time where children from the villages or the countryside, they did not have the privilege to go to school. But what are some of the things, I guess, you learned in comparison to Shanti Bhavan? Are there any similarities or are they drastically different from one another? So I think that, you know, some of the stories that I've heard from people or that they've written to us or talked to us about, some stories are very different, um, but some stories have similarities, at least in some of the challenges of poverty that the individuals who are writing to us are talking about, or that they have witnessed or have been, you know, very close to. And so it's been interesting to see uh, how how they kind of watch the stories of these five young women and what we're doing and uh, feel a connection because of that. And so that's been pretty powerful because that 
speaks to universal humanism, that we are all sharing certain experiences and we have certain ways of dealing with hardship or challenges that evoke certain emotions. And so that's been very powerful to watch. Um, on other hand, they've also, you know, people have responded with incredible uh you know, enthusiasm and kindness towards us and saying that the work we're doing is completely surprising to them and, and very moving to them. And that's been really validating and, and very uh, supportive. You know, sometimes the work can be, the, this work is, I love it, but it's always complicated. And so it is sometimes great to get encouragement and support and belief in what you're doing. Um, it gives uh, that extra push when uh, things are really tough. Yeah, absolutely. When I saw the documentary, what crossed my mind was the fact that just the volume of tasks, the expectations on you and you alone was quite gigantic. And and I happen to be in the industry of, you know, multimedia, advertising and marketing. So I know how much work that typically goes into, say, a one minute video. But you didn't just take on one two-hour documentary. You actually took on a whole series, and that was so beautifully designed, so well shot. And um, I wonder, how did producing such series kind of impact your life, your role? And I feel like that's part of a pretty big challenge, potentially, too. So, yeah, I think I have been very lucky to be uh, mostly a facilitator and uh, the subject of or, or one of the subjects of the documentary series. The credit really goes to Vanessa Roth, who is the director and executive producer uh, and her production team, Cause and Effect Media. And the way the series came about was a volunteer was really excited by the program and she thought this was something that was unique and she'd never seen uh you know, before, you know, one of her neighbors was Vanessa and she told Vanessa and said, Hey, I really think you should take a look at this. Uh, she already knew that Vanessa was a veteran documentary filmmaker. And, um, Vanessa and I met for coffee in New York and we talked about it. And, um, you know, my role as director of operations, one of the things is to ensure the stability of the organization and making sure that, you know, that we are, um, you know, there's the continuity of the organization and that we're treated fairly uh, and that, you know, that we're not, you know, that somebody in the, like if is a new story is done on us, that it's done accurately and that it's done fairly and that people understand the full picture of it. So we had been approached before and we've had one documentary done earlier uh, that was 90 minutes and, and they did a great job too. Um, but they only got a snapshot because they were only there for a certain period of time. And Vanessa was looking to do something a bit longer and a little bit more extensive. And we had a lot of conversations before she started filming because I, I needed to feel reassured she was going to do our organization justice and get into some of the real details of what we do. Uh, but on the flip side, she's an independent documentary filmmaker who had made her living, um, had won an Oscar before with some of her work and um, had, was very established, uh, had, you know, couple decades worth of uh, experience under her belt, it was really important to her to main her, maintain her independence, that the documentary wasn't going to be a promotional piece for Shanti Bhavan and wasn't advertising for Shanti Bhavan. It was genuinely an independent documentary shot by her and produced by her team. And that's what was created. So what you see uh, with Daughters of Destiny is sort of um, 
collaboration of like, we're the subjects and we were able to work with her in getting her access that she wouldn't get access otherwise. Like she would not be able to go into some of the communities she was able to go to and shoot in without us kind of facilitating that. And uh, the parents would not have talked to her as openly and as transparently as they did without us kind of reassuring them that uh, she's going to do them justice and she's going to be fair. But on the flip side, we had no editorial control and no control of their day-to-day logistics. But uh, the credit to the film is really her, um, you know, Vanessa Roth and her incredible team that spent seven years working on this series. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wow, um, seven years. Yeah, it, it was a, it's, a, it's a labor of love and, and a lot of work. And um, a couple of years ago, I think she realized it was going to be well longer than a, a full-length documentary film. And she approached Netflix and um, Netflix was really enthusiastic about the film and what the footage she had. And they picked it up and worked with her to finish the filming and to see it uh, through production. Wow. Seven years is a long time. I remember talking to another guest from uh, uh, equivalent, like a Disney animation movie with uh, hundreds of people involved, you know, millions of dollars, and typically takes around that time, you know, six, seven years. And th- another thing you mentioned I thought it was really uh, kind of astonishing to me is no editorial control. I think that's rather daring from you and your father who, you know, is the founder of the organization, you know, and I also find your role to be really interesting in that film. Your role was very important because there is that kind of generational gap, um, Mm -hmm. you know, between the young, very young girls and and boys and, um, you know, your father who's so established. And then there you are. And some of the translation occurred because of you. How did that dynamic kind of make you feel like when when did you feel like wow they're maybe getting too close to the edge or maybe my father won't like this what if this is not (laughs) you know give the world people who have never traveled to india never even interacted with an indian person uh, will they misinterpret this i mean yeah i mean you're you're really you really hit it in that um it did take us a lot of trust and um you know, some of my team members, you know, kind of talked to me about it and said, you know, it's hard for an outsider to understand Shanti Bhavan at a glimpse. Like we've been working at the organization for a couple of years and we're still understanding the organization. It's been around for 20 years and it's it's more than a school. I think of it as a community and almost an ecosystem. Um, the youngest child there is four and the oldest graduate is 25. So that's a huge range. And there's a lot of lived experiences and a lot of traditions and culture that comes around through that period of time. So it took a lot of trust from us. And and it did take a lot of conversations back and forth between Vanessa and myself and our team um, to establish that trust and create it. And, you know, I give her a lot of credit for being, you know, very honest and, and transparent and being very genuine with us. And we felt comfortable um, that she would be fair to us. And that not always everything we would necessarily like that was shot, or we would not maybe like every moment that, you know, comes on screen, but um, it's going to be a very true story. And I think that the authenticity of the story is much more powerful than if we had had editorial control. With regards to my role, like, you know, uh, I do think you captured it again there that it, I think I bridge between, you know, my father and his generation and his way of looking at things and then the students and the children that are with us and their way of looking at things. And um, often I am able to put myself in their shoes, at least when I'm dealing with maybe educational challenges or personal challenges, you know, I can kind of draw on my experiences of being between both worlds, right? Uh, I was the first child born 
from both sides of the family in the United States. And that is an interesting space to occupy uh, in terms of culture shift. And that culture shift for the SB kids or the Shanti Bhavan kids is similar. Um, they're still living in India, but they're living in a community that has a very Western uh, set of values in combination with a very Eastern set of values. It's a hybrid of two worlds. And that community represents kind of living in between two worlds. And so the SB kids are living between two worlds on campus, but they're also living between two worlds with the Shanti Bhavan's community versus the communities that they grew up with. So I. I, while my lived experiences are different, definitely different from theirs, I do understand some of the emotional turmoil or complexities that come between that. And I, I think I was able to, I think I am continually able to speak to them effectively bridging those two worlds. Um, and that's, that's really important. I think it gives them um, a new avenue to express their feelings that it's differently. Like they have a different relationship with my father, which is a very solid and strong relationship. But my father is also, um, very much a father figure, a little bit, sometimes, you know, a little bit stern, a little bit like they, they're sometimes a little scared of him, not scared of him is not not the right word, but maybe they're a little bit intimidated by him because he's such a accomplished man who is, uh, much older than them. And I'm a little bit more accessible in some level because I'm closer to their age and I have similar, you know, cultural, context. Mm -hmm. I can almost relate to that because I am and I teach a lot of um, I teach martial arts at a local Taekwondo school and I get to interact with these kids too from you know age four and up and there's just no other opportunity for me to really engage with people at that age and the power that we have and the sort of the privilege we have to influence their lives and making their lives better is something I never quite imagined. Um, yeah. It's so fascinating to me. Um, there, there are a million questions I, I still have, but um, one thing I noticed is the choice of choosing five girls. I, after I introduced this film to a number of my friends and men and women, there were all little surprised that Shanti Baba not only had have girls, but they also have boys. Was this choice kind of, um, you know, made on, on your own? Was this something that uh, Vanessa chose to focus on girls only and not boys for the film? So, yeah. So Vanessa originally um, had planned to have a mix of both boys and girls. And she, um, uh, she, she filmed organically. I think Vanessa's process is sort of to go with her instinct of where interesting stories are at the moment. Uh, and so I think the times that she was filming, she had captured some of these girls and really, um, found things about them that were interesting to her and spoke to her. Uh, she has two daughters of her own and I, I, I can see where maybe uh, the stories of the, of the girls that she followed might uh, remind her in some ways of her two daughters. And she's a, a son as well, who's much younger than her two daughters. But uh, I, I suspect maybe some of the, the elements of these girls spoke to her of her own daughters. That's me, that's me extrapolating or guessing, having known her daughters a little bit. She also followed boys. Uh, but I think what she told me at a certain point was that um, originally she was going to do a mix. And as she was looking at the footage and as her team was looking at the footage, they really felt that the story that they had around the girls and the time uh, they spent with the girls was substantially longer and they had more footage and they had more uh, compelling um, stories around them and they didn't have enough with the boys to, they felt to fully flesh out their storylines and so they didn't think they would do it justice to, to the boys if they tried to include them it would be more like a half effort whereas they felt they had really strong full stories with the five girls that they followed and so 
I think that was a really strong motivating factor for her choosing five girls over a mixed uh, set of boys and girls. I think the other reason that she went with um, girls over boys, I think there's a lot that's happened in the last couple of years that has have spoken to both challenges that women are facing in the global in the global context, uh, as well as, of course, in the American context. And I think it was important for her to elevate and illustrate and, and shine a spotlight on uh, the stories of these five young women in a very particular way uh, in this very particular time in history. And so uh, that was the decision made. And I, um, I think it's it's resonated well. On the other hand, I think there's some really, really powerful stories with their young boys um, that I hope uh, at another Sequel. time, yeah, you know, that maybe there's an opportunity to tell those stories too. Uh, and, and I would really love that to happen. Well, I think actually some part of the interesting, some of the interesting stories are actually the mix of the two and how the boys and the girls get along with each other in Shanti Bhavan and kind of that relationship and those dynamics and how do you create a gender equal, equal society um, when uh, the prevailing attitudes around you don't really lend, uh, lend to that. So uh, I'm excited to see, you know, maybe future opportunities. Yeah, I I think that's definitely a given because of um, the, the film kind of showcased the world outside of Shanti Bhavan, especially in towns where these girls, um, these children are from. And the difference is sort of between how their parents interact with one another, where the women had very little control over own, their own destiny, if anything at all. Remember, there was a very short scene where you sat down uh, in the dorm room with about five boys uh, reading through the survey and asking them if they knew that, you know, the worst countries for women to kind of grow up in, which India happens to be one of them. And they were shocked to hear that. And then you even further developed situational questions where and asking these young boys what they would do in that situation. And their answers were so drastically different than someone who were not, um, you know, as if they were never attended the school, I suspect the answers will be drastically different. So the changes are not temporary, but they're permanent. And that is so powerful to me to witness. Yeah, this, the segment you're talking about was as part of a, a larger workshop that, um, that I conduct on campus called Feminism for Boys. And um, Shanti Bhavan has been constructed from day one as a gender equal society. Um, and I say society as opposed to school because it really is a society. Um, and it, it, it lends its, there's many ways we kind of enforce that or, um, you know, showcase that or, or uh, support that. And that's part of it is the leadership uh, responsibilities that are equally split between the boys and the girls um, in every context, whether it's inside the classroom or on the soccer field or um for special events or when guests come, we always really strongly enforce gender equality. And we correct any behavior that we think lends to sexism or misogyny. But once you get past the surface, um, as you will know, there's a lot of subtle discrimination or sexism that comes up that may not be overtly demonstrated, but our internal you know, ideas harbored within, you know, within a person, you know, they're constantly getting counter-programming from 
their home villages or, or the areas that they come from. Uh, they see violence against women. They see prejudice against women or, or discrimination against women. And so I thought it would be important to delve deeper with um, a series of workshops called Feminism for Boys, which really has them think about these questions more uh, robustly. Um, there's elements of role playing. Uh, there's elements of, you know, trying to embody the opposite gender and kind of think through uh, complexly what that might be and how they might feel. And so these are deeper uh, mechanisms to kind of ensure um, a more equitable society or gender equal society. That is part of the ethos of Shanti Bhavan. Um, education is really only scratching the surface of, of what Shanti Bhavan does. Um, I have been privileged to go to some of the best schools in the U.S. and, you know, had a lot of opportunities in my life. But what I realized later on was at no point in my life did any of these educational institutions teach me anything about what it means to be a human being, uh, what it means, uh, what my place is in society, what is my responsibility, um, do I have any duties or obligations, um, you know, some of the best schools I went to actually taught me I should think about myself first and I should be very successful <laughs> and um, not really worry about anything else besides that. Right. And uh, that seems to be at odds with what my parents taught me and what I personally believe in. And I believe in that we are we are born into a world that we are sharing with uh, our fellow human beings and that hopefully we're going to leave this world better than we entered it and that we should be proactive in our contributions positively to this world. And, and I think that is the ethos of Shanti Bhavan, um, we, we really instill a sense of civic and social responsibility within the kids. And so we say, yeah, go on and be successful. Go on and uh, make money. Go on and attain your dreams. But make sure that part of your dream is to give back to people in need, to give back to society, to be a positive contributor to this world, uh, to help those in trouble. Um, that you owe a debt to your fellow uh, human beings on this earth um, and, and a debt that you should do by whatever action can you can do. Maybe it's by volunteering. Maybe it is by donating. Maybe it's by uh, supporting those in need, but, but take action. And so the social fabric is a really important part of the Shanti Bhavan ethos and community and school. And I'm, I'm really proud of that part. I, there's so much I want to learn about you. I'm glad you you brought it up. And I also, at the same time, I don't want to give away so much of what this documentary entails. And um, it really touches so many aspects of life. And these uh, young men and women grow up not to just be book smart, but they really know how to doubt with social situations in a way that, you know, given their upbringing and the situation they're still in, they, they must adapt. And one of the segments I especially love is to watch these young young women have to return home and the, the healthy cross-pollination on one hand of teaching their younger siblings how to do math, how to speak English. But on the flip side, they are talking and saying, do we come across as being arrogant or as we're better and smarter than everybody else? And you're sitting there watching this as like, thinking a 10-year-old girl has to make that conscious decision. What is the right or wrong thing to do? It's, it's not so clear. You know, it was so fascinating. Yeah, yeah it, it, the, the, the kids live between two worlds, and they are trying to navigate those worlds complexly. And on one hand, they want to support their families. Um, they're trying their best to teach. They're, they're trying their best to support, uplift, to um, guide uh, their families, and to be 
and to be loved and respected and be part of their family um, like anybody else. On the other hand, they are different from other family members because they've been given this great opportunity and uh, they're trying to make the most of those oppor- that opportunity. Um, but their context now of how they speak, uh, how they conduct themselves, what they expect, um, what they don't want to happen is very different. And so, um, you know, especially as the young girls get older, they're, they're very um, firm about uh, ensuring agency for their own bodies and uh, not marrying early or, um, you know, being subject to the whim of a man. And so they are navigating some pretty complex lines, which makes their, their triumphs and their successes all the more um, amazing and beautiful to, to behold. Yeah, love that. It's so interesting to kind of hear your perspective, too, after I watched the film. And one of the things I I thought about immediately after is I really want to hear your experience. And so thanks so much for sharing. I wanted to learn more about you because I imagine the school was founded 20 years ago and has accomplished so much in nearly two decades. But I imagine when I want to know what was it like when your father approached you, maybe with your mom and maybe to you and your younger brother and and then shared this story or shared this vision with you. Do you have any recollection of that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I um, I'm 42. So my, I was 22 when the school was founded. And so uh, old enough to you know think about it constructively and um uh, with some maturity, but also with a lot of ignorance. And the key thing that I thought about was my father um, had always been a generous man throughout his life. And so I wasn't entirely surprised or um, taken aback by his ideas. And I and I really was actually pretty thrilled and excited and, and embraced them. But I don't think I quite knew the whole of what he was doing. Uh, in fairness, I don't think he knew the whole of what he was doing either. Uh, <laughs> I think it became much larger than either of us expected or anybody in the family expected. And I, and I think that's a great thing. I think it's going to be, you know, I, I think it's going to be much bigger than any of us in the family. Um, and it's already much bigger than any of us, but it will, it will eclipse anything else around us. Uh, and that's really exciting to see it go forward. But, um, I think when my father first talked about it, I was excited by it and I was intrigued by it. And I thought that was really, um, I was very proud of him for thinking, beyond himself. Having grown up with wealthy peers, I had seen a tendency that the the height of accomplishment might be um, the size of a home or the vehicle that they drove or maybe the job that they attained. And that was the marker of their value in society. And it would have been easy for my father to go down that same path, uh, certainly easy for our family to follow that path that my father chose consciously to not do that uh, and to say that his value in this world is by what he can do for others and that our my family as a whole has embraced that ethos as well is something I am deeply proud of. And um, I hope that will be a role model for others, that, that maybe people will take some inspiration from our work and uh, think similarly uh, about their work. I'm so glad to hear you say that. There are our families and friends, some friends that um, so sort of like through my parents' network, hedge fund managers to, uh, you know, independent entrepreneurs who've made monies that I can't possibly count. But especially in recent years, I almost felt disappointed that they didn't really take the initiative to do something for their community. Even when it comes to the smallest things, it's all about 
a bigger paycheck. It's all about, like you said, where can they buy their next vacation homes and diamonds and God knows what. But may I ask, where did you grow up? And you know, what what was it? What was it like for you as a child? Sure, I um, I was born in New York City, um, uh, Columbia University Hospital, and um, you know, grew up in. Um, New Jersey, most of my life, uh, Montclair, the North Codwell, the Booton Township. And uh, uh, so I knew New Jersey pretty well. Um, and I think the different neighborhoods we moved throughout illustrated my parents' uh, ascension in wealth and success. Um, as they became wealthier and more successful, we, we moved to nicer neighborhoods and better homes. And that experience was mostly good. Um, there were times where it was challenging because we would move every few years. Um, and so being uprooted and shifting locations was a little bit complicated in terms of maintaining relationships and friendships um, and even maintaining expectations within schools. I think in other areas, you know, it was interesting. The more successful my family became, the more I encountered racism. And that was that was hard uh, because we were in more and more um, all white communities with less minorities. And so I think sometimes that lack of other people like yourself can cause some problems in terms of, you know, the majority understanding a minority, right? If you're the only one there, there are certain preconceptions and certain biases that, that can come crop up. Uh, so there were some complexities, especially as I got older. But my parents were always very uh, loving and very supportive. Um, they were very uh, kind and generous and helpful, um, but they were also strict and had very high expectations in, uh, I would say, the in the stereotypical Asian, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of stereotype that you sort of expect. And so sometimes I lived up to that. Sometimes I didn't. Sometimes I was genuinely rebellious against it. And um, those were those were interesting um travels but i think those that that journey of both embracing on some level high expectations and then at other levels rebelling against it helped shape me uh, both who i am today i think um, i am a man with high expectations and, and a strong drive towards excellence and yet um, a understanding and ability to deal with the unorthodox or to also deal with uh, the unexpected and understand that the journey is not always a straight line and i, I think that's something that's uh, often forgotten, but it is something I try to work with the kids as well in that, um, you know, there's a lot of detours and curves and, and hardships that the children at Shanti Bhavan face. And uh, my own lived experiences of having uh, some up, some pretty big dramatic ups and downs um, help me give them practical advice um, about encountering their own ups and downs. Mm -hmm. You know, I just got back from New York City uh, two days ago at a um, uh, World Taekwondo Hall of Fame event. And it was the first time for me to visit a town on the way back, which was um, Greenwich, Connecticut. So I actually never heard of it and um, just happened to be grabbing dinner on the way back. And what surprised me, however, is um, just the the similarities among people living in, in Greenwich is a beautiful town, and I don't mean to judge people and ask if they're all the same, but I noticed just the level of preppiness, for example, a little bit similar to a town closer to where I am, such as Wellesley, Massachusetts, and Wellesley College. But at Greenwich, it's almost on steroids. Like everybody, <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. It was so eye opening to me. A 16-year-old carrying a Chanel purse, um, a teenager is driving a Lamborghini. I mean, 
you you see that. And in downtown, every, there's Saks Fifth Avenue shop there for some reason that looked really random to me. And then, I mean, I can't believe that happened before our interview. And I sat there waiting for this recording to start and realized you were 22 at the time. And your dad, your parents basically approached you and said, for people who are listening who haven't watched the series, you know, take basically taking in these four-year-old children who came from absolutely nothing, a group of uh, basically a a class of people identified as the untouchables. I had to even look it up um, to understand what that meant. And and then to raise them until they're uh, 18 and then pay for college tuition and to make sure that they have, they're successful at their jobs and to, to support them. I mean, that's basically approaching you and say, son, we're giving everything away. We're giving all the money our money, our family has ever made away. And meanwhile, you're 22, you're, you still have to work, right? It's not like your life is said and done. So instead of saving the Asian, speaking of the Asian mentality, yeah. saving millions, billions of dollars for my children so they never have to work again, or your children's children don't have to work again. Wow. I mean, what a, what a difference of that image of what I just witnessed to, it still shocks my system to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It is, um, you know, something to think about. Uh, my parents were, were extremely wealthy um, at the height of, you know, their success. And when they were about to start Shanti Bhavan. And uh, they'd done a lot of other charitable work in India that made a pretty big impact. Um, my father led the la- largest testing and treatment of lead poisoning ever done in the world. And it, it, it directly influenced the introduction of unleaded gasoline in India, which was a huge environmental you know, impact on the country. But um, when he, before he started all of these endeavors, you know, there's this point of like uh, high level of wealth, certainly, you know, 1% of 1% kind of uh, level of wealth, it would have been easy to go along that road and live in that life of luxury. Um, you know, had my father simply invested wisely, it would have compounded and, and, uh, I would never have to work again. And same with my brother and my children, children, so yeah. on and so forth. Right. <laughs> which is very much the, you know, Asian way of doing things, which is to, to maintain your wealth, ensure the family is secure, ensure, um, especially, you know, the sons, the, the the first son and, you know, gets a huge inheritance and so on and so forth. I will say that I am deeply thankful that my parents did the decision that they did, not only for all of the kids and all the people whose lives they have deeply touched uh, and impacted and uplifted. Uh, and they have, their uh, their impact has been outs- outsized. I mean, when you think of, you know, Shanti Bhavan, it's direct intervention that changes the entire course and trajectory of not only a single child, but their entire family and their communities. But also, you know, something like the lead poisoning and treatment, um, that changed the direction of an entire nation and what its environmental impact was. Um, That is a huge accomplishment on its own. But when I think about actually the impact for me personally, um, I have had the chance of knowing people from uh, extreme wealth uh, throughout my life. a lot of them I get along with very well and enjoy their company. Uh, but I also see that I have more than a few have confided to me the struggle they have to have some meaning in their life and the struggle they have to, I think, find purpose or find uh, reason to do anything uh, is is pretty remarkable. And that 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 is, I think, maybe, you know, there's no woe is me for people who are incredibly wealthy, but certainly... 
I am glad I didn't walk down that road myself. You know, I think that the documentary series goes into it very fast passingly where we had a financial crisis. Uh, I've, I've spoken before about how actually how tough that was that basically wiped out our entire family. Um, we were on the verge of bankruptcy. Everything we had, material possessions of any any value, uh, was sold off or, or, or um, you know, lost. Um, you know, um, some of our money was swindled away. There's we we went through a huge calamity, and so we went from extreme wealth to um, you know near poverty at one point. That was enormously difficult, and I don't say that I enjoy any moment of that experience. But I will say that the, the going through that fire, uh, and it's a bit of like a crucible, um, burns away all that is nonsense and all that is unimportant in the world and kind of boils it down to the fundamentals of what is valuable, um, gave me tremendous strength and uh, the ability to see what is valuable in my life and what isn't. And not having uh, a lot of excess in my life these days, I, I live a modest but comfortable life, has uh, given me a lot of meaning. The work I do will be the most important thing I will ever do in my life. It is my life's mission. It is my cause. It is my reason to live. Um, and it is powerful. And uh, I am thankful for that because um, I would rather have that than a ton of money and, and have no understanding as to what to do with it or a reason to have it. Like, I just can't imagine buying ridiculously uh, expensive luxury items upon luxury items and just having entire closets full of it. Um, you know, it just doesn't, it isn't the way of way I want to live life. Uh, no, it would be great to have a lot of money and then be able to exercise that to better goods. Uh, if I had millions of dollars, suddenly uh, I certainly would build another school and there are more things I would accomplish with that money. But I see money as a means to um, a greater end. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that now you live a, a you know comfortable lifestyle. I I wonder what drives you, what makes you happy these days. Um, what what are your hobbies outside of Shanti Bhavan? That's consuming, I'm sure, a lot of your time. Yeah. So Shanti Bhavan is basically. I, I recently decided that I was going to take one day off a week and just not check emails. But it, it has been most of the time for many years a seven day uh, a week job and you know, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's long hours and it's every day and it's pretty taxing. Um, you know, very vacations are few and far between, but when you love the work and you believe in the cause, it is, it ceases or it is less like I, I, I hear other people describe their work and they pretty much always are looking to escape it. They're just, they can't wait to get home from work. They can't wait to do anything else but work. Whereas I think of work as an extension of myself. It, it gives me meaning. It is, it, it drives me and it ignites my imagination. And, and why I'm excited by it is because, as I said, like I don't see it as just an uplifting an individual child, though I am so wrapped up with the lives of all of our children there. Like their lives are important to me and the hardships that they face and the challenges they face are important to me. But I also see it as a movement, something bigger than any one of us, uh, including myself and my father, or, uh, any one of the children, is the ability for these kids to 
um, have an outsized impact. So I see, you know, from, from here, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, these kids who are, you know, 25 or 20 to 25 will become, you know, 30 to 35. They'll start being in like, you know, senior positions or middle level positions or companies. Maybe they'll start building companies. Maybe they'll start entering politics. What kind of impact are they going to have 20 to 30 years out? Like maybe they'll be able to transform systems or societies within communities in a very powerful way. Maybe they can start writing policy or enacting policy. Maybe they can start um, changing the way we do business. Sure, uh, maybe it'll always be a capitalistic society, but maybe there is a different way about how corporations engage with their environment and their communities, how they allocate um, funds. There's so many different ways that I have not imagined, but I am so excited to see what our kids will do. And, and I'm hoping that we build a second school and a third school so these schools are networked with each other. You think about two, three different schools in, in an ecosystem where the kids are maybe spending time at a different schools, like, they, like a study abroad program, except they're just going to another Shanti Bhavan and they, or they spend summers together in a, in a summer camp. So all three schools or all four schools or all the kids are there together. They're building communities together and shaping each other by a shared system of values and goals. And I think that's super exciting. So there's a lot of things in my mind. I have these I have a vision and I have certain expectations and, and desires that I want to accomplish within my lifetime to see all of the the architecture set up to build this. I feel like Shanti Bhavan is just the beginning of the journey and that there's so many more things that I want to accomplish in my life. And that's really how I, um, you know, what keeps me going. Uh, but outside of that, you know, I, I try to practice yoga every day. Um, I learned Taekwondo for many years when I was younger. And then, um, you know, in the last few years, I've picked up Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I enjoy that as well. Um, it's it's fun and it's competitive and um, it, it sort of gets me in a different head, different space because a lot of time I'm spending a lot of time in my head thinking about things. And as you know, like something like Taekwondo or Jiu-Jitsu is very physical. And so you think maybe less or it's more like an instinct or on on ritual and, um, you, you go on autopilot and there's a certain part of your brain that turns off and a different part of your brain that turns on. And so that, that is exciting to me too. I really enjoy that. And, uh, yeah, that's really the ways I kind of spend my free time. Um, how much time do you split kind of between us and, and traveling to India at, at this moment? Sure. I spend four months of the year in India. Um, that's January and February and then June and July. And those are the top of the semester. So the semester goes from June through middle of December, and then it goes from January through uh, middle of April. So I try to be there at the beginning of both semesters for the first couple of months to help, you know, really establish, you know, the expectations for the semester and really talk with the kids, talk with the teachers and the administrators, make sure that everybody's really on, on, on track and kind of, you know, we also have foreign volunteers and kind of work with them as well and kind of set things in motion. And then I, I come back to the U.S. Wow. That's four months is a, is still a very serious commitment. And where where do you currently reside in the U.S.? Yeah, I'm, I'm in Seattle right now. So uh, I lived in the Northeast most of my life, but um, uh, my fiance is based in, in here in Seattle. So I, I work from home so I could, I could work anywhere. We try to keep costs low. So, uh, we don't have a permanent office in the U S and, um, so it was easy for me to move, uh, across the country for her. Wow. That's, uh, I love Seattle and Portland, Oregon. <laughs> so in love. Uh, does your fiance potential will travel with you and pursue this endeavor with you? <laughs> yeah. She, so she, um, 
we were dating for close to a year and then she came out for the first time and she, um, she was, uh, finishing up her master's program. So she had a little bit of time in between. So she, um, she volunteered for six, six weeks with the organization to really understand it and get, um, a good grasp of what, you know, what was my, my life's calling, you know, it was pretty important for her to understand that. And she, she really loves the organization and believes in it wholeheartedly. And then every year since she has taken off uh, a couple of weeks to spend time with me when, uh, in June, because there's, that's when we have our graduation. So it's a kind of a big three day, four day celebration where we honor the kids who are graduating and send them off to college or the kids also who've just graduated from college and are starting work for the first time. We, kind of throw a little celebration. Um, and so everybody, the whole community gets together then. And so she comes there too uh, during that time. This sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I'm sure she will feel the same way to be able to interact with these kids on a personal level. It was just so powerful. Um, I must ask, what does it take to build another school? How much money do you need to raise to kind of replicate the model of Shanti Bhavan? We've got a November 9th gala and we're, we're goal is to do 2.5 million and 2.5 million kind of does phase one, which is the uh, purchasing of the land and the development of the land and the first set of buildings and, and development of land is pretty complex um, because we do uh, organic farming on the land and we have our own deep well water systems. Um, we have our own solar systems, everything like that. We're, we're not entirely energy independent, but we're pretty close and we do take up a, a fair amount of space for the kids and partially because it's just not a school. It really is a community. And so we want the kids to have enough space to play sports, um, to feel at home, to feel safe. Abuse rates in the community that the kids come from is pretty high. It's about 80 percent, some level of physical or sexual abuse the kids have endured or, um, you know, you know, been victimized at some point in their lives. And so there's a lot of interesting aspects of the school that is not apparent at, at, on the surface. But one of them is a uh, lower than normal depression rate and PTSD rate for that population. And there's a lot of reasons why. The boarding school aspect is one of them, removing them from their, um, you know, their source of uh, trauma. But it's also just the beauty of the school and the environment. And so that's why we put a lot of value in into making sure the environment is good. The total cost for the school will go up to six million once everything is finished. And that that means, you know, um, like all the different buildings and that's administrative buildings for, for the teachers who live on campus um, so that they can live there, their families can live there, um, you know, our, our our teams, uh, including the kitchen facilities, all of it. There's a lot that goes into building a full-fledged community like Shanti Bhavan. So our overall goal is $6 million. And um, once we, you know, the financial component is the biggest component by far in ensuring uh, the school, we can build a second school. But then the secondary component is finding the right team. We're not willing to compromise on any element of the school. And there's a reason for that. There's often been this sense that people or, or children from the poor or, or poor people deserve less or, or don't need as much. I think there's sort of an internal prejudice in our own minds that they're like, well, they're poor. And so like, if we can just give them a meal or they can just read or write, that's enough. They, that's all they really need. You know, somehow our expectations for them are much less than our own personal expectations for ourselves or our own children. And Shanti Bhavan doesn't operate on that. We, we believe that the children of the poor, uh, the, the poor themselves, deserve just as much as anyone else, and that our expectations are just the same on them as anyone else. So we give these children the same uh, resources that any middle class or upper middle class family would get, um, but we our expectations are very high. We strive for excellence. We don't 
really take a lot of excuses from the kids as to why uh, they don't do well. And that's actually been really great. Sometimes we've been told, hey, it sounds like you guys put a lot of pressure on the kids. And I, I say... I grew up with a lot of pressure and that molded me to rise to expectations. I knew my parents believed in my capability to succeed. Um, when you tell a child, hey, it's okay if you don't do really well on a, on a test, it, you know, it's, it's going to be fine. The child doesn't think you believe in them. They don't believe, think that you have faith that they can do well. Um, but when you say, hey, I know you can do well on this exam, I expect you to, 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 to really put in the hours and work hard and study and, and take do whatever need, you need to do to do well on this exam or do well in your job or do well in any aspect of life. They want to rise to that expectation. They know you believe in them. They know you love them, that you care for them and you want the best for them. And I think that pressure and that push really does make a powerful impact. And so that's reflected in everything we do in terms of the quality of the institution, the facilities. If you ever get a chance to visit us, I think you will find it to be um, Shanti Bhavan to be modest, but beautiful and lovely uh, in everything that that is there. Um, but you also see the staff. You know, our staff have very modest salaries and, you know, work very hard, uh, but they we have high expectations of excellence from the staff and every member of the team. And it's the same for the kids. So I think that the main, main component and my long-winded answer about what it would take is financial, obviously. The money is the biggest. Uh, money is always the biggest uh, obstacle for any uh, endeavor, I think. Uh, and then the second is finding the right team members who are willing to really uh, see this as not a job, but as a mission, um, as a cause that they can uh, believe in and that they can find joy in as they work. I wonder if there's any opportunity for organizations like Shanti Bhavan to be more self-sustaining um, when, you know, through contribution, maybe from the alumni or some sort. I feel like the current consensus that, that you continue to give and then to support the school. Um, but I wonder the financial support support could also come from elsewhere. Too. Yeah, I, I think eventually the, the the institution will be self-sustaining by the alumni. Uh, but I think that's going to take probably 10, 20 years before that happens as they all like, you know, move into like higher paying jobs. And uh, I'm sure many of them will contribute back to the institution in some form or the other. As you know, sometimes the NGO world uh, has certain benchmarks and one of them is sustainability is something that's tossed around a lot. And I kind of joke with that is that I feel like that's sometimes a buzzword that that's passed around uh, kind of fashionably. And I think, well, every institution is sustainable if, with enough money, right? Like Apple is not, Apple is not self-sustaining unless it sells product. Corporations need to sell products to make money, right? An NGO I think of it less that somebody's giving a donation, but you're giving an investment. And so um, maybe I'm not selling a product, but I am espousing a value or a change. And hopefully a donor thinks that change is worthy of their investment. If I fail to produce um, excellent results, if our kids don't go on to be um, change makers in their communities, or they're not like by the end of the program, they're not out of poverty and they're not able to alleviate their families out of poverty, then that's fair. And I think it's fair to be criticized for that. And then that is a failure on our part as an institution. And then maybe then there's a reassessment of whether, you know, financial support is there. But I think much in the same way that a corporation succeeds or fails on the quality of its product, um, an NGO should feel, fail or succeed on the quality of its outcomes. And that is a, probably a better benchmark than a um, self-sustained system 
that shouldn't expect financial support in any in any fashion. Um, but I do think eventually, um, you know, to to address your larger question, I think do eventually that the, the alumni will be major contributors to its well-being. But then if we expand to a second school or third school, we'll need more funds for that. And I, I really do think um, we as a community or as a people or a society should think about NGOs differently. It really, we shouldn't be so wrapped up about whether an NGO is sustainable, but rather what is the outcomes of that NGO and is it worth investing in those outcomes? Like, do you, do you agree with those outcomes? And if so, is it worth the investment? And, um, that's sort of how I talk to donors these days. I say, hey, look, you know, it's an investment and you're not going to get that investment back in your pocket, but that investment's going to go pay forward to other people in need and, and it's going to replicate. Your money is going to, to, to grow and it's going to grow and it's going to have incredible impact well beyond what you see today. I see so many successful Indian entrepreneurs, you know, who potentially grew up in some of these um, neighborhoods, maybe not as humble as some of these uh, beginnings here, but um, you know, they're thriving in the U.S., elsewhere in the world. I can absolutely see the the intention or sort of the, the, the motivation to contribute to Shanti Bhavan, um, you know, really making your, uh, I think the first level is making your own country a, a definitely better place for women, for young, for young people. But also I can see even beyond the Indian population, um, but the world population of people contributing to and to be able to learn from that. I, I personally learned so much about NGO and um, I have a, I, I couldn't skip. There's one question I feel like I, if I must ask you, you mentioned work, organic farming and, and really have it clearly, but I noticed in the film that your father was walking around and making sure that there's enough, um, there's enough food and then they're fresh and, and the kids talk about that they're hungry in college because they, you know, they sort of, they had to take care of themselves for the first time. But when they're uh, in Shantibhavan, they were eating four or six times a day. They're never hungry. They're very nutritious food. We, we maintain uh, an organic farm that has uh, a wide variety of crops. And that is uh, partially because we want to be um, food independent to, to the best of our abilities, uh, but also because of health reasons. We want the kids to have a nutritious, nourishing set of meals every day. Um, and we sometimes worry about, you know, what where the vegetables are coming from, if we buy them from outside or what chemicals or pesticides might be used. The other advantage of the um, the farm is that uh, the kids get to work on it, um, you know, once a week. And so they may not always love it at the moment, but I think it really instills in them a certain value about knowing where your food is coming from, uh, having some responsibility for your food and having some responsibility for your home and the upkeep of your home. And um, I think these are really pretty valuable lessons that they learn. Uh, I'm excited by the organic farm. I really enjoy what it produces. Um, we have some cows also, so we have fresh milk and yogurt uh, on campus. And um, all of that's been, it's been really, it adds to the community element of this, of this school, that it really is a community that thinks about multiple different aspects of what it re requires to be a good human being in this world, well beyond just education. Um, these are all components that build off of each other and, and help us shape us a Help, our, help shape our identities and how we will go forward in the world. And I think the kids, you know, farming and, and working on it, contributing to their own meals, um, being mindful and conscientious of where their food is coming from and how they take care of their food, um, how they must be contributors, not just consumers. 
are all positive messages. Wow. It sounds so much more fun than uh, all the private schools I've ever heard of. <laughs> it's an incredible I, experience. I, 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 would, I would say that like uh, almost every volunteer who ever goes to Shanti Bhavan will say, I kind of wish I'd gone to this school yeah. instead of my school. So <laughs> I, I feel the same way too. <laughs> this sounds a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, Wow. Thank you so much, um, Ajit. I mean, right. I thank could... you. Thank you. It was, it was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Okay. Bye. Hey, it's Faye. I am back for a few words at the end of the show. I hope you enjoy what you heard. You can visit us online at faceworld.com or social channels such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, also under FaceWorld to keep things simple. I personally review and respond to all the messages. Love to hear from you. Thank you and lots of hugs. See you next week. <laughs>